welcome to the Cine Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg. And we are here for the final two verse 15 matchup of our movies from Books Bracket Challenge. I want to apologize in advance if I sound a little bit under the weather. It is because I have what we like to refer to as the commoner's cold. So forgive me for my vocal abilities today, but you're getting what you get. So we are going to go through both of the movies we have for you today, which are True Grit, which is our second seed, versus Memoirs of a Geisha, which is our 15th seed. So going into these movies, we have True Grit, which comes in at a 96% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, based on the 1968 novel by Charles Portis, translated into film in 2010, directed by the Coen brothers, was nominated for 10 Oscars, one zero of them. One of the most ever nominated films in history to win no Oscars that year. So it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor Jeff Bridges, Best Supporting Actress Haley Steinfeld, Best Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, Sound Mixing, and Sound Editing. So pretty all-encompassing of a lot of the categories that we see in film in general. So a ton of nominations, again, one none. Then we flip to Memoirs of a Geisha, comes in at a 35% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, based on the 1997 novel by Arthur Golden, was translated into film in 2004. Five by Rob Marshall, also produced by Steven Spielberg. Fun fact, both of these films were produced by Steven Spielberg. A huge casting controversy when it comes to this movie. The three main actresses, as a background, this is Memoirs of a Geisha, so it is set in Japan, and all of these women are supposed to be Japanese. The three main women in this movie were actually Chinese and well-known in Chinese cinema. So at that time... The Japanese and mainland China relations were really intense at the film's release. So China actually stopped the film's release in China. Japanese viewers took offense to this movie, said it was an inaccurate portrayal of geishas. It was westernized. Huge, huge casting controversy when it comes to this movie with the director, Rob Marshall, coming out speaking against it. Ken Watanabe, Japanese actor who was in this movie, who you might know as Saito from Inception, spoke out on the defense of these three main actresses and how they went through a crash course and learning geisha culture and all of these things, but still just a lot of mixed feelings when it comes to the accurate portrayal of Japanese culture in this movie. It's interesting that you bring that up because the same thing actually is happening with Mulan, the live action Disney movie that got released where it's actually not doing well in China because it's so westernized. And it just made me think that this movie that came out years ago and Mulan have that in common and nothing has changed over the years. Well, it's interesting to talk about this now, too, especially since the Oscars just released their plan for inclusivity for nominees for the future, which they're going to come full term with in 2024 and thinking about this, not that it wouldn't meet the criteria for that, but thinking about the authenticity of the actresses. And you have huge conversations these days about cultural appropriation, about casting choices in movies, about casting people who specifically fit that role, going a little bit outside the box. So it is a huge topic, I think, to talk about and one that we're not going to dive too deep into in politics, especially because I think both of us are a little ignorant about what's going on between the relations of Japan and China at that time. And now I don't want to talk about things we're not well educated on. But I thought it was interesting to bring up just because of the reviews of this movie, too, because this was a heavily nominated Oscar movie. It was nominated for six Oscars at one three. So it was nominated for score for John Williams, who, fun fact, passed up doing the score for the fourth Harry Potter movie to do this movie, then was nominated for sound editing and sound mixing, and then won three Oscars for art direction, cinematography, and costume design. So for a movie that was so heavily nominated and had a big presence at the Oscars, for then to see it at a 15th seat in this bracket challenge with a 35% approval rating. I think a lot of the reviews are coming from the standpoint of the cultural aspects of things, the historical aspects, and this casting controversy. And that's why those ratings are so low. Yeah, I think there's some other problems with the movies, but those are probably the big ones. Of course. Yeah. And we'll go into, I think, why 
a lot of the reviews are a little bit lower just with the plot, the movement of the movie. But in reading some of the critic reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, a lot of them did bring up some of the cultural aspects of this film and the inaccuracies that they saw. But anyways, we will go into these movies, talk a pretty glaring overarching theme, which I'm really excited about because we haven't seen that in a few of our other challenges. We'll talk strengths and weaknesses, little details that made a big difference, and we will go into what will be our winner and move on to the next round in this bracket challenge and the last of our two verse 15 seeds. So let's jump right into it. and talk that really big overarching theme. And what we saw is between the two main characters in both of these movies and the theme of kids having to grow up too fast, specifically both of the main characters in these movies are set on the course they go through in these films because of a death of a parent. So you have Haley Steinfeld's character, Maddie and True Grit, who is trying to avenge her father's death. Her father was murdered by this outlaw named Tom Chaney, and she is on a mission to kill Tom Chaney and meets Jeff Bridges' character, Matt Damon's character, in the process. And the whole movie is about her going on this journey for revenge. And then you have Memoirs of a Geisha, where you have this young girl, and we're going to refer to her as Sayuli, because that's what they call her in the whole second half of the film, and it's just easier. She has a couple different names they go through, but we're just going to call her Sayuli. So we see Sayuli as a very, very young girl being sold by her father, who then she finds out her father died, her mother died, her sister is separated from her, never sees her sister again. So she's on a coming of age kind of development path where she is learning to be a geisha, then becomes a slave, then is going through geisha training again and trying to become a young woman and trying to find her place in life. So both of these set off by deaths of really close family members. Yeah. My one, not issue, but in True Grit, Maddie has a mother. We just never get to meet her. Don't really hear that much about her because Maddie goes to the town where her father was killed and asks the police chief how the investigation is going. When she doesn't get the answer that she wants, which is we're going to find this guy, she instead gets, well, he skipped town and we probably aren't going to catch him. And she doesn't like that. So she's going to go find him. And for Maddie, it's almost this inner instinct where she becomes the man of the house when her father dies. Well, it sounds like she has to step up because she talks about her mother being at home and being worried about where she is and sending her post and telling her my business isn't finished here. And she learns a lot from her dad throughout her life. And that's imitated then in the film. And I thought that was a really cool aspect of her character and her development is while she's on this journey with Rooster Cogburn, played by Jeff Bridges, and then LaBeef, played by Matt Damon, which his name is actually LaBeouf, but they call him LaBeef, and it's so funny every time. So as she's on this journey, she also is incorporating into her story. My dad taught me how to do this. My dad taught me how to do this. And it does seem like she was so strongly influenced by him and that he was a strong presence in her life that she then steps up to fill that whole and to replace him as that family patriarch matriarch. Well, I like that you brought up her dad because for someone that is in this movie, not at all, besides the incredible opening scene where it's his dead body laying there and then they pan in and it's his body and a light coming from above shining on him. Other than that, you don't see this guy in the movie. I don't think they actually have a person casted to be him. No, unless it's a Daniel Radcliffe type scenario where he's just playing a dead body and it's a really famous person playing a dead body. No, that's not the case. I'm just saying. But um, no, I think that is speaks to the greatness of this movie, too, that you have a character that is not seen doesn't have any speaking words. You don't see him through flashbacks, but through her story and how she is as a person, you're able to know what kind of guy this was a little bit and how important he was to her. And I think that it is so cool. And just her dynamic in this movie is so cool, too. Thinking about her starting point from when she travels with Rooster and when she travels with Labeef, they treat her as a child when they first meet her. She's paying Jeff Bridges' character, Rooster Cogburn, to go and assassinate Tom Chaney. She wants him to go kill him. But he doesn't know, wakes up the next morning, she's like, I'm ready to go. 
And he was telling her, you're not going with me. You're, you're a kid. And she said, I'm paying you. I want to make sure you're doing what I'm paying you for. So she goes on this journey with them. And it's such an interesting dynamic from where they start, where she is seen as this child and she doesn't know anything. And there's one really funny but weird scene very early on on their journey where Labeef starts spanking her and calling her a bad girl because she's a child. He's treating her as if she is a child and it throws her off because she's not in a headspace where she's 14. She's playing a 14 year old girl in this movie, but you see her growth throughout the movie and you see that they respect her as a woman and as a leader and as someone who has something to say throughout the rest of the movie. But also, on the other hand, you see her slip ups a little bit because she is a child. And I think that that is so fun to see this girl who is very mature and very outspoken, but to see a little bit of the slip ups and a little bit of the ignorance when it comes to some things because she's 14. Yeah, it does a great job of walking that tightrope of this character being an adult and a kid. And in a movie like this, where it feels like a coming of age story, it's very important that they don't teeter to either side and they go straight down the middle. And I think this movie did that extremely well. And I think with the casting choices and obviously the way the book was written, but the way that the characters interact with each other and play to each other's strengths, especially those three main characters we've been talking about, is so amazingly great because you do see them cancel each other out for some things. You see her who's strong willed and motivated, but then you see Rooster Cogburn who's drinking and sleeping and is like, ah, I'll do it when I do it. And so she's motivating him, but he's also keeping her grounded and more realistic a little bit, especially when it comes to the very end when they do find Tom Chaney and they find the whole gang he's riding with and she tries to shoot him, but she hasn't shot a person before. She's never killed anybody. So she misses when she shoots him at first and then can't get the gun to go and she gets kidnapped. And same with when she falls in the snake pit at the end. She tries to get herself up, but she can't and she needs help. They all need help along the way and they all complement each other so, so well And that is really, really fun part of this movie. Yeah, everyone in this movie just has a really fun dynamic, all three main characters and how they interact. And it feels like a dysfunctional family at times. It does. And that's fun thinking about this coming of age portion of things where she is finding people who are almost a replacement family and a strong father figure that she has lost. Because as we stated, We don't know anything about her mother. We never actually see her, but it can be implied that she's not as strong willed and not as much of a go getter as Maddie is. So then she finds these two guys who are kind of up for anything and go and kill people and go on these missions and travel. Yeah, it's a it's a Western. It's a Wild West Western. And it's really, really fun. So she replaces that that father figure almost. And we see at the end of the movie when she's a little bit older and she goes looking for Rooster Cogburn and finds out he's passed away, her going and visiting his grave and him still being an impact on her, even though he treated her kind of as an asshole for a little bit of the time, she understood him and he understood her towards the end. And I think that it was a really fun movie to see a lot of really great character development in. Yeah. And this all goes into my second similar theme that I had. I hid it from you, but I wanted to bring it up now. And that is both of these characters having relationships with older men and they're both having a significant relationship in the movie. But it's so different between the two versions of it. Yeah, because you jump to memoirs of Geisha and what we see is Sayuli as a young girl after she's been basically kicked out of Geisha school as a young girl and is being a slave for mother in the house where all of these girls live. And some of these girls are trained to be a Geisha. She goes on an errand and meets this man on a bridge called the chairman who is nice to her and gives her basically what westernized snow cone looks like and then gives her a handkerchief and gives her some money. And she ends up throwing the money in the well, keeping the handkerchief and grows an admiration for this older man. And that turns into a love story and a deeper connection, which 
I had a little bit of a weird problem with throughout yes, this movie. Yes, I wanted movie. to ask you about this. Yeah, because I felt that the first half of it was very, very good. I liked seeing her as a young child and seeing how her life shaped up and seeing that coming of age go along. And then it just became all about her quest to be with this older man and all of the things that she did in life was motivated by being with this older guy who she met on a bridge when she had to be eight or nine. And I didn't love that about the movie because I wanted more about her and her being a strong woman who was doing things because she wanted to pick up her life from where it was and make it better. And it wasn't that. Yeah. Halfway through the movie, it shifts completely from a coming of age story to a love story between two people that met when one of them was eight years old. And I felt a little uncomfortable with the end because when she eventually comes to him, he says, I know who you've been the entire time. That's creepy. It's creepy not because of the age differences, but it is creepy because it's grooming. He knew. Yeah, he knew her when she was eight. She was training to be a geisha. She was still meeting up with him. He was pretending not to know who she was, but was waiting for this perfect moment for them to like fall in love and be together until she was 18. It was really, really odd. Yeah. And I going back to the first theme of kids growing up too fast. That's why I really liked the first half of this movie and thought it was going to be really, really good. Because the first half of this movie, I was wondering where these negative reviews were coming in because I was like, this is an interesting coming of age story so far from a different cultural standpoint than we would see in westernized culture. And I loved, again, both the similarities in this movie of keeping these children like children and this little girl who had to grow up too fast, still being impulsive. So we see a moment where Hatsumomo, who's one of the best well-known geishas in town, who lives at the same house that Sayuli does, who's much older than Sayuli, tells her that, hey, I found your sister because she wants Sayuli to be gone from the house because she's threatened by her, because she's beautiful. She has these blue eyes. She's training to be a geisha at this time. So Sayuli goes to this brothel where she finds that her sister was taken to and they arrange to go and meet each other on the bridge and Sayuli's like let's just go now let's go now and her sister's like no we don't have any money we can't do that so it is very childlike and impulsive and I really like that because she is a child and I think so many of those elements were in that her curiosity in general, but then she kept doing the same shit as an adult. And I was like, why is this still happening? For instance, her peeking in door cracks when she was a child, she saw Hatsumomo and her boyfriend having sex, peeked in through the door crack, saw it, talked to somebody about it. So there were those moments where she was just genuinely childlike curious, but then it kept happening. She was an adult and she was peeking into door cracks where she was seeing things she shouldn't have and people were catching her. It's like, girl, just stop looking into door cracks. These things have not shaped up well for you in the past. That's so funny. I like that you brought that up, telling this character to just grow up already. It's not even grow up already. It's how many times have you gotten severely punished for peeking into people's business that you shouldn't be seen and getting severely punished, kicked out of geisha school, whipped in the garden for it. And you keep doing it and it's not helping you. But one of the reasons that she is in trouble all the time is because of these hijinks with Hatsumomo. And I wanted to ask, why is Hatsumomo so mean? This is not regular bully mean. No, she's threatened by her status because, like we said, Hatsumomo is the top geisha in that area. People know her. People seek after her. People want to be entertained by her, accompanied by her. And then you see this young girl who everyone talks about is beautiful and they're grooming her to be this geisha. And she finds her as more desirable because Hatsumomo is also getting older and she knows that. And then you have this young girl coming and she might see a lot of herself in that young girl. So she wants her to just be gone and feels threatened by her position. So I think that it's not that she's bullying her because she's just doing it. I think she is truly jealous of this young girl. I guess. I just thought that Hatsumomo as a character was overly mean, and I get that maybe she was supposed to be, but Hatsumomo is a next level mean. She literally tries to burn them alive when she is throwing the 
oil lamps on the ground while the place is on fire and everyone's trying to put out the fire besides her who's trying to burn everyone alive. No, she's definitely super evil, but I do think it's a status thing. It's definitely part of her personality. She's way more evil than some of the other ones because we also see Pumpkin in the end who gets revenge against Sayuli because she's also a little bit jealous of her, but also mad at the attention that Sayuli got when she was younger and that Pumpkin didn't necessarily get that same kind of attention, but does it in a way where it threatens Sayuli's character, but doesn't try and kill her. So what she does is she sets up so the chairman sees her with one of the American soldiers who's coming in to enjoy the company of the geishas and then try and insinuate that they're having a thing and that the chairman gets jealous because all along Pumpkin has known about Sayuli's feelings about the chairman. So she does that to get revenge, but it's not purely trying to hurt her. It's trying to hurt her emotionally, but not trying to physically kill her or harm her. Whereas Hatsumomo is pretty vicious. Yeah, it's those geisha politics, man. Who knew? Crazy. Something I will not understand. But it was interesting. I did read a little bit on geisha culture after we watched this movie because I was very curious if that was still happening. And it is. There was some documentaries on YouTube from 2018 just about geisha life in Japan. So it really is interesting because I didn't know fully what a geisha was going into this movie. And knowing then that they are trained in entertainment and are there to entertain men through dance and song and through their beauty and their hairstyle and their costumes. It's all very interesting culturally to learn about that because I didn't know what it was before we saw this movie. But that being said, let's go into strengths and weaknesses of this movie because I think something I just said about the geishas and their hair and their costumes and how they look and all of the pretty visuals of it. Is that in your strength? That's the biggest strength for this movie. And I think it's probably both of our biggest strength for this movie is just the visuals of this movie. But reading it, there was one thing that bothered me about this. So I'm going to see how you feel about this. But looking through all the scenery, here's what I liked. The streets, the houses, everything looked so intricately detailed and so authentically Japanese from what I guess I know of what Japanese culture looks like. So maybe I'm not the best historian, but it looked believable. It looked beautiful. The architecture on the buildings was lovely. The costumes, the makeup, the styling, the shoes that they wore, everything down to every little detail looked really great. Reading this, this was all shot in California. I don't know if that's less impressive or more impressive. That's what I had trouble with because everything was built on a soundstage. They filmed a few scenes in Kyoto, but they filmed pretty much all of this movie on a soundstage in California. So I hear what you're saying because on one hand, I thought to myself, well, that's super impressive because they had to build all of these exterior shots. They had to build all of these interior houses, all of these little details of these houses on a soundstage. But also I thought to myself, you couldn't go immerse yourself in the Japanese culture. You already had problems in the casting controversy of this movie by not embracing Japanese culture. And then you're further not going to do it by shooting in California. Like, uh. Yeah, the way they take an entire movie surrounded by being in Japan and excluding most parts of Japanese culture inside of the movie besides Ken Watanabe, that was the only Japanese actor. I'm sure there were others, but I think Ken Watanabe is the most notable of the main actors in this movie that was actually Japanese. But it was also interesting because reading some of the filming locations... One of the filming locations was at like a Japanese garden in California. So again, you're playing to the exact controversy of this film that the Japanese audience is saying that it's westernized and you're filming it in a westernized version of Japan in California. So I just had a bit of a problem with that, wrapping my mind around it. Again, impressive that they built all these sets because the visuals are stunning. It's beautiful. But also I was just like, oh, you couldn't just find a few places in Japan to film. Was it 
that hard. But going into these visuals, there are just some scenes that are absolutely beautiful. Them being in the Japanese gardens, which I guess were shot in California, but being in the Japanese gardens, seeing all the cherry blossoms and the petals off of the cherry blossoms falling on her face and all over the place is beautiful. And then there's a scene after the war comes around where she is no longer needed to be a geisha because they're in the Japan's in the middle of a war. She goes and works in a kimono making field and they hang the big silks from the kimonos on these very, very tall lines. You'd see laundry lines, but think 30, 40 feet up in the air with these big drapes of kimonos hanging. And it's so beautiful. There are some scenes that are just lovely to watch. And I think that's why it won the Oscars for what it did. And it was just it was pretty to watch it. Yeah. Even more than that, the thing I wanted to focus on with the strengths was the geisha performances, because I've never seen a geisha perform. And if this is what they look like, sign me up. This looks pretty cool. The fan part, not when she's entertaining the soldier at the end, but when they do the fan dance and the pageantry of it all. Super great looking. I agree wholeheartedly. There was one scene that they did, though, and it was this performance piece that Sayuli did. And I guess it was different in the book because it was Mamiha in the book who did it. And I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing these names wrong. I just don't have a good flow of them. But Sayuli does this performance piece where her hair is pretty much hanging in front of her face and you don't really see her face and it's snowing on the stage and she's in these really high like Lady Gaga heels and she's doing this contemporary-ish dance. But I couldn't help, and I'm sorry, again, if this is ignorant, but I couldn't help seeing Samara from The Ring as her in that scene because she has this long black hair that's wet from the snow that's coming down over her face. She has her white face paint on, so you can't see her face at all. And she looks like the little girl from The Ring. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't really think about it while I was watching it, but... I did. I was like, this is spooky. She's going to crawl out of my TV soon. The Ring must have resonated with you much differently than it resonated with me. Maybe. It was was a pretty all right movie for the time it came out. But no, the visuals, I think, were really great. And I don't have any other big strengths of this movie besides that. No, we talked about my strength, too. Well, let's go into weaknesses then. And my weakness, I think we already touched on a little bit, and it's probably very similar, if not the same to yours. But this movie feels insanely predictable throughout the entire thing, except for that very short first half where you think it's going to be a coming of age story. Once she meets the chairman and we find out her admiration and her goals to becoming a geisha, it's pretty much lined out for you what she's trying to do and that there's going to be a fight between the girls and everything just feels very predictable and very drawn out in the second half. It's like the movie is trying to build suspense But it never hits any suspense. You get what's going on. You get what's happening. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, okay, I get it. I get what they're trying to do. I know what path she's going on. Can we just get there? Because it's taking fucking forever. And the whole second half of this film just dragged. And this was a two and a half hour long movie too. And I think they probably could have cut 45 minutes of it easily. Yeah, I agree. One other problem that I had was for a movie that was so long and you could develop so many characters in it, we don't really know anything about anybody besides Sayuli. We don't even know anything about the chairman, really. She loves him, but we don't know why. We know that he was nice to her once, but that's about it. We don't actually know anything about his personality or how he makes decisions or anything, really. I guess the The second most notable person would be Hatsumomo, but she's just mean. There's no scenes with real feelings with her, if that makes sense. It does. And I think it's because you're missing pieces of these people, right? You don't see Hatsumomo's childhood. You don't see the chairman before you see Sayuli meeting him. What you do see, which would be interesting, and they stopped with it, is you see when Sayuli gets to the geisha house, When she is brought there after her parents basically sell her, you see her come in with a very young pumpkin and you see pumpkin growing up, learning to be a geisha. You see pumpkin going to her first event as a geisha 
And then we don't see pumpkin for a while. And so that could have been a very strong movie there, I think, with these two young girls. And the rivalry between them, I think, is far more interesting than Hatsumomo, who you don't know anything about as a childhood. You don't know anything about her personality other than she's mean and she was a top dog in what she did. And so I think if you would have focused on the coming of age portion of these two girls, compare it to movies that we've watched in this bracket challenge, such as The Kite Runner. You have two little kids who grow up together. You see how they veer apart. You see how they are different as adults. And then you see what happens after one of them dies. And I think if you would have followed that same thing in that traditional coming of age way, you would have gotten more context with these girls. Yeah, that actually sounds really great. A movie of the two geishas and how their geisha lives go, but we just don't. And that's my weakness. For sure. Let's go into True Grit and let's talk about weaknesses if you have one, because I could not find one. And I hate when I can't find one for this podcast because I don't want you guys to think we're not doing work or actually watching these movies. But truly, this is a movie I watched and I loved and I was sitting there trying to think of weaknesses and pulling any would be nitpicky for me. I have one and it is nitpicky. Okay. It's that Matt Damon's character just being able to check out of this group and check in whenever he wants was a little off for me. I think that goes along with Westerns, though, and that culture. And and the problem is it's part of the story. When he comes back, he saves Maddie. So I can't be too nitpicky about it because it's important for him to leave so he can come back and save Maddie. But it's just weird that he comes in and comes out multiple times. When it's convenient for the storyline. Yeah. Yeah. But also I look at it as this was the wild, wild west. People were a little bit of loners out there on the trail and doing what they needed to to survive. And that's what he was doing. And these people didn't really like him when he showed up in the first point. Anyways, Rooster Cogburn and Maddie don't really love him. So there's no incentive for him to stay. He has plans for this whole journey, which includes catching Tom Cheney and turning him into Texas where they could get more money for him and tries to get Rooster on that same plot line. And Maddie's very against that because she is not looking for money. She's looking for revenge. So I think that when he hears that, he pieces out and he's like, all right, I don't need these people then. I'll try and go find this guy myself or I'll try and go make money elsewhere. And I think that is part of what we see in Westerns is that it is very independent and very independently goal seeking. And so while I hear what you're saying, where he came in and out of very convenient times for the plot of the story, I think it goes along with how life was in that time period. Yeah, you talked me out of it. Like I said, it was nitpicky. I didn't even really believe it, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have nothing, but I can talk about strengths for a whole while. And the biggest strength is the acting in this movie. It's phenomenal. Haley Steinfeld is dynamic in this movie and so great. And I hadn't seen this movie before. And she was chosen out of 15,000 actresses to be in this movie. They had 15,000 people audition, which this is a, a side note too, though. But going back to Memoirs of a Geisha, when that controversy came up about not casting Japanese actresses, they made an excuse I read somewhere where they were like, well, we uh, had a, auditions in Japan and no one came out. Oh, OK. You had a film produced by Spielberg and directed by Rob Marshall and nobody came out to audition for it. Don't believe it. Whereas you have a everyone was like, no, thanks. Right. Don't buy into it. Whereas here you have a film produced by Steven Spielberg and you have it directed by the Coen brothers and you have 15,000 14-year-olds come out for a role. You're just trying to tell me you can't get adult Japanese women to come audition for a giant movie produced by a giant production company on a big budget? Yeah, I didn't even know that many 14-year-olds could exist in LA or wherever they did the casting at one time. Oh, I'm sure they do. But yeah, so she was chosen out of 15,000. This was one of her first roles and I had just seen her in Pitch Perfect. I had known her from her singing career and seen her as more of a teen icon, I guess, because she was trying to push the singing envelope. So I hadn't seen this movie, but seeing her in this movie, you think to yourself, wow, she's great. Her lines, she has heavy, heavy dialogue she has to get through. They wrote 
a huge, huge amount of dialogue for this girl. And she pushes through it like a champ and she delivers it in a way where you get who this girl is. It's because she delivers it with such bravado. That's the word I would choose. And you see it right away when she's trying to bargain for her horse, Little Blackie. And she is basically giving this guy a run for his money. This guy who thought this little girl was going to come in here and buy a horse. And that's cute. And she bargains with him and ends up with everything that she wants and nothing that he wants. And intimidates the hell out of him, too. At first, it is the same thing as we talked about with this coming of age standpoint, where at first you meet this girl and she's 14 and has her Wednesday Adam braids and is this little girl. And you think, oh, this is cute and I'm going to treat her like a child. But then you realize that she's more intelligent and more of an adult than you are and that people become intimidated by that because she does deliver lines in such a dynamic way. And I think that speaks a lot to the casting choice of her that this is a 14 year old girl with little to no experience in acting who is going to act alongside of Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon and be in a movie produced by Steven Spielberg, directed by the Coen brothers. And she holds her own. She kills it. She does so, so well in this movie. And as a trio, her Jeff Bridges, Matt Damon, they're very interesting and all very, very, very good in this movie. But even Jeff Bridges is fantastic in this movie because he's just this gritty outlaw who does whatever he wants and is really funny in this movie. Jeff Bridges is basically the best actor for a Coen Brothers movie because he can be gritty and funny. Another one that I love is The Big Lebowski where he is insanely funny in it. He gives off this feeling that he's just here to hang out and kind of just make himself laugh. That's what I feel like when Jeff Bridges is in these movies is he's doing things to make Jeff Bridges laugh and it just works for the tone that the Coen Brothers movies set where they are serious they are heartwarming they are funny not all the movies are heartwarming but this one in particular was heartwarming and he just nails that he nails everything that it should be perfectly well and one thing that I think the Coen Brothers are able to do in their films but also goes back to the book and goes back to Jeff Bridges acting is that he is able to be funny in unexpected areas and for there to be comedic relief in a movie where you don't expect it, but that it's nice to have, even though this is a pretty light movie, it's not super, super heavy. So you don't need a lot of comedic relief in here, but they put it in, in these perfect moments. And there was one scene in this movie where Maybe it's bad that we did, but we laughed out loud at this scene. So Jeff Bridges goes into this store and there are these two kids out front and he asks them a question and they don't really respond to him and they're kind of dismissive. And I think he smacks them on the side of the head, which again, not condoning abuse towards children. If you see the scene, it's just done in a way where it's comical, but you question yourself of, is it okay to be laughing at this? So He does this because they're dismissive of him. He goes in the store. He comes back out. And the one kid is sitting on the fence post in front of the store. And he just knocks him off the fence post. And the kid falls to the ground. And he just walks away. He doesn't acknowledge it. He doesn't say anything about it. It's just funny because of how his character is. He doesn't really give a shit about anybody. He hasn't cared about anybody but himself. He drinks. He sleeps. He kills people. That's who he is. He's this carefree guy with some pretty loose morals. But that little comedic relief in the movie, because you didn't expect it, it was really, really funny. But again, I was like, oh, should I be laughing at this? Because he just kicked a child. But it was really funny. For the sake of the story, you can laugh because it's supposed to be funny, I'm pretty sure. But it is those little elements, like them calling Matt Damon LaBeef throughout the whole movie. Funny. Hilarious. So hilarious. Him shooting Matt Damon. Hilarious. The dynamic between Matt Damon and Jeff Bridges in this movie, although Matt Damon's not in it for that much of the time, is so funny because they're two very, very different people with very different agendas. And so they clash a lot. But when they clash, it's very comical. And Just the acting overall in this movie is my biggest strength. I think it's so fun. I think these three main actors are so, so good in this movie. Yeah, I was writing down my strengths and I realized that I was just writing down the big buzzwords that would go on the cover of the DVD case. I wrote down that it was funny, heartwarming and visually appealing. 
Tell me you can't see that across the cover of this DVD. Well, yeah, and it speaks to the star power of this movie. We talked about the acting, but you talk about visually appealing. This is a Roger Deakins movie. He did the cinematography. He's amazing at his craft. I feel like if you ask anybody, name me one really famous cinematographer, Roger Deakins is probably at the top of everybody's list. And if you don't know him and you have seen things more recently. I think one of the most recent things he did was 1917, which is incredible, incredible, incredible. But yeah, this is a Roger Deakin cinematography and it does look very much like the Wild West, the way the colors are, the way the landscapes are, the way it's shot. It all is very, very visually appealing and you don't have to be overwhelmed by the visuals. We talk about memories of a geisha and the visuals and it being because there's so intricate details in there that it's cool and you don't run out of things to look at. But here there's not a whole lot to look at, but the details that are put into what is there are awesome. One of my favorite visuals is I already talked about it, but it was the opening with Maddie's father and his dead body laying there. I thought it looks so good and they add the monologue to it. It just works. It grabs my attention almost immediately. Agreed. Let's go into little details and we can keep with True Grit since we're on it. And one thing that was, I think, in that opening, but also was throughout the movie, I have Three little details, by the way, because there were three little things I liked in this movie. I have one, but it was done multiple times. Okay. So my first little detail is the snow effects that they add in this, because I was thinking about it as I was watching this movie. And I was like, I don't think I've seen a Western where there's snow in it. You see the wild, wild West and you see Westerns and you just see sand and desert and dryness. And for this movie, it snows a couple times in the movie and it's really cool to see and it's a pretty aesthetic and I I just liked it. <laughs> I don't really have much to say about it. I don't know if there was meaning to it. Maybe there was, but I loved the way it looked. The whole prettiness of the snow falling in the middle of the night in the desert was so cool. Yeah, I didn't actually really think about it while watching the movie, but now thinking about it, it makes it feel like a movie that you've never seen before. And I think that also does a great job of setting this apart from other Westerns. My small detail, and I'll let you get to yours in a second, but my small detail is the mirroring that they do with scenes. There are two in particular that I like, and one was the similarity in the casket scenes. So when they load up her dad's casket and when they load up Rooster Cogburn's casket at the end, it's shot for shot exactly the same. And it goes into the relationship that Maddie is having with this older man where she lost her father and almost just finds another father figure in Rooster Cogburn. That's a great little detail. I didn't even think of the mirroring effects of it. But when you talk about it with those wooden coffins with the names etched on the top, it is very similar. And back when we saw her going to see her father in the casket, we know that all the caskets are the same. So that's already laid out on the table. But the mirroring effect is really cool because you're right. It does symbolize the overlapping relationship of these two characters in her life. They do it again. You want me to tell you the other one? Yes, please. The other one is when Maddie and Cogburn go to that house with the two members of the Pepper Gang in it and the one ends up getting stabbed and they shoot the other one and they both end up dying. Before that, they know that the Pepper Gang is going to come back to that cabin. So they go sit up and wait with a gun. And what happens is they're overlooking this cabin and LaBeef comes around and runs into the Pepper Gang in front of the cabin. And Cogburn is shooting down and misses a shot and accidentally hits LaBeef. And we get the same effect when LaBeef is with Maddie overlooking Cogburn fighting the Pepper Gang. And Cogburn's able to kill a couple of them, and there's an ultimate showdown between Ned Pepper, the leader of the Pepper Gang, and Cogburn. And Cogburn ends up falling off his horse, being on the ground, and Ned Pepper is standing over him, guns drawn, and LaBeef is able to hit Ned Pepper from 400 yards. I think that's the number that they give. And is able to shoot Ned Pepper before Ned Pepper is able to shoot Cogburn. And it's very, again, very similar. It's a mirroring process. No, that's really cool. Like you brought up those multiple instances. I think that's fun. And it just goes into the production of this movie and how much 
little details they actually put in there. And talking about my other few little details, my second one is that they gave little Blackie a moment when he died, which I appreciated because sometimes you see animals die in movies and they just leave them to dust. And they they needed to because the whole thing around this was that Maddie was bitten by a snake and Cogburn had to get her to a doctor. He sucked out as much of the venom as he could, but knew that she was still dying. So they rode little Blackie as far as they could into town to get her help. But little Blackie was tired and Maddie was saying to Cogburn on the way there, he's tired, he's going to pass out. And he does. He passes out and he can't get back up. So Cogburn has to shoot him to put him out of his misery, basically. And as they're walking, because Cogburn then carries Maddie to the town, you turn around and you see little Blackie under the stars and he's dead. But you give him a moment and it's nice for animals to have that moment in movies. Yeah, they don't really give animals moments in movies. So I like that even though little Blackie is not a character, they still give him a send off. He's a vital part of her coming of age story. That's a huge purchase she makes. That's a huge bargain she makes to get him. Him, and she trains with him on and the little boy who is the stable guard or whatever he is who gives her little Blackie tells her he doesn't even know you're on him because you're so light, you're so small. And so for them to grow in their relationship that she can then ride him through the wild, wild west and he trusts her and is this ally to her that she bought and took care of on her own for him to have that moment, I think was really, really cool because she is a child and that's a huge loss for her. She just lost her father and now she lost this horse. That was such a big part of her journey. I think it's only fair to give him a little bit of a moment and it's only little, but I think it's really great. Yeah. And my other little detail is the score. And again, the score is by Carter Burwell, who I absolutely love. And I have talked about him in multiple podcasts before because we have gotten a few of his scores and he did the Twilight score, which I have talked about in other podcasts before, which I absolutely love. And the score is so great because if you guys have ever been to Disney World, it sounds like Disney's Frontierland, the entire score. It's a little Tom Sawyer-esque. If you guys have seen The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is another Coen Brothers movie, it sounds a little similar to The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And And I liked that because the movie isn't a hard Western. It's not anything with a lot of big, big, hard moments in it. There's tough moments, but it's not gritty. It's not something that you would see, such as The Hateful Eight, where you see a Western that is very gritty and violent and tough to watch in some scenes. This is a little bit light and it talks to the development of these characters and the coming of age of this girl. And it does sound very whimsical and very fun. And it's a really, really good score and makes you feel very comfortable in a harsh environment. I love that you brought up the score. It was really good. I didn't even think about Disney or Frontierland while watching this movie. So it's funny that you did, but it is great. You said everything that needs to be said about it. Uh, Going into little details of Memoirs of a Geisha, I have one and it was, we talk about the first half and the second half of this movie and the first half being pretty all right and the second half being kind of garbagey. And my little detail is the transition between those because it was my favorite part of the movie and it was her becoming a geisha. And what they did was they did a montage, which I appreciate in really long movies because I don't need to see every detail of her learning to be a geisha. I think that the montage moment was really great. And what they do is they do a lot of really cool transitions in that montage. So you see her becoming a geisha. You see her learning to play music. You see her learning to dance. You see her learning to walk in the really high flip-flop shoes that they wear. I'm sorry, I don't know the exact term for them, but they're basically these elevated wooden flip flops that they wear. You see her getting fitted for costumes. You see her putting on makeup and through it all, there's these fan transitions. So she'll have a hand fan and she'll flip it open and it'll transition to the next training scene. And it's all backed by the score. And it's a really fun transitional moment to see how she goes from not knowing anything to then becoming this up and coming geisha. And I thought that that little detail of it and a was so appreciative of them just throwing that in there in a really nice two minute montage was 
one of my favorite details of this movie. I love everything with the fans in this movie. I know I already talked about the fan performances and the strengths, but you brought it up. The transitions were also cool. So shout out to the fans in this movie. The actual hand fans, not the fans of the movie. Not the people that liked the movie. The (laughs) actual fans to cool yourself down. But my small detail is just the jarring difference in the entertaining of Japanese men and American men was staggering and worked very well. When we first see an American man being entertained, it is one of the geishas riding him like a horse. And my first thought is, why don't they just have her do the fan thing? That's cool. Because those dudes don't care about that. They're like, yeehaw, girl, come on. And yeah, it was interesting because it's these soldiers they're trying to entertain and they basically want prostitutes. They don't want to be entertained by geishas. So I think that's different in the cultural aspects of things. But that is interesting to look at in the movie. But it did feel very scummy when these American guys came in. Yeah, it was just completely different. And I have it as my little detail because it did a great job of showing how much things changed for her when World War II happened. Agreed. And I don't have any more little details for this movie. I don't either. I don't have any closing comments for either of these movies. I think going through this, we have a very clear winner, as we have had with a lot of these past matchups, I guess Aside from our last one, that was our biggest upset. But on the count of three, let's go and tell all these people what moves on to the next round. Three, two, one. True True grit. grit. True Grit moves on to the next round. A truly fantastic movie. If you guys haven't seen any Coen Brothers films, I mean, The Big Lebowski's classic. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs a little less well-known, but also really, really, really great Western. But if you're a fan of Westerns or you're just a fan of some easy-to-watch movies with really great acting, this is the movie for you. Memoirs of a Geisha, great visually. Some problems with the plot, a little bit long, but not a movie that I think we hated or was super unenjoyable. True Grit just had the edge over it in so many categories when it came to the acting, the visuals, the plot, the movement, the continuity factors. It just beat it overall in this battle. So True Grit will move on to the next round. And that is the last of our two versus 15 seeds. So that closes out that seeded matchup. So then our next episode will move on on Monday, September 21st. And we will begin with the three versus 14 seeds. So we will be talking Moneyball, which is our third seed versus Everything Everything, which is our 14th seed. So with that closeout, we had some major upsets the last podcast. And even this one, I think it shook up some brackets. So looking at the challenge leaderboard for our bracket challenge, it looks like our first place, second place, third place has shifted for the first time in several weeks. So we're moving on. We're getting into towards the end of these initial matchups. So go check yourselves out on that leaderboard and see how you're doing, see what your score potential is because everything can change in the next few rounds. We just posted those brackets to our Instagram account. We post regularly on our Instagram and Twitter at the Cine Matchups. Please give us a like, give us a follow on those platforms. Please listen to our next podcast when it airs on Monday, September 21st. And thank you guys so much for listening. And for the Cine Matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg. And we will see you next time.